The reading this evening is from Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 1, reading to verse 15. It is on page 1037. 1037. Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorn stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way they are choked by life's worries riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We pray that you grant us understanding, and through understanding we might um, appreciate Uh, something of the Christian message that we can apply to ourselves or the way in which uh, we understand life. Right, so we're looking at the parable of the sower. You'll find it on page um, 1037, uh, Luke 8, that's that version. There's also, of course, it pops up in Mark's Gospel and also in Matthew's Gospel. And it's perhaps the, the best known of all the parables. Now sometimes parables can be a little bit difficult to suss out and to understand, but this is the only parable where Jesus gives the definitive explanation. So in one sense it is the easiest to understand. 
it also answers a number of questions that we might frequently ask as Christians. How does God change people? What is his method for doing so? Is it unnatural to find sometimes evangelism really hard work? And maybe if you've seen some kind of response, to then become discouraged by the way in which they seemingly backtrack. Why is it that some people, for example, start off really well with buckets of enthusiasm and yet don't last? And how can you tell a genuine believer? Well, the main point, though, is that um, unless you understand the message, you are in danger of not believing in the real thing. Because it's quite possible that you just hear certain aspects of the Christian message. And so your understanding is partial. Um, but of course, neither are the real thing. And so you've properly, probably not got the full picture. And without it, whatever you have believed in isn't, in the end, the real Jesus. Well, there are two obstacles that we need to understand. To, to overcome in order to understand the parable. The first is ignorance and the second is attitude. So let's deal with ignorance first of all because we need a little bit of agricultural understanding and I don't suppose any of us are familiar with first century Palestinian agricultural methods. I'm not even familiar with 21st century Western agricultural methods as a visit to our garden would display. Anyway, it's very ecological. So, um, but if you were a bit agricultural, you might be saying to yourself, wasn't this guy a bit daft throwing corn seed onto pathways and onto rocks in the first place? Of course nothing's going to, I mean even I know that nothing's going to grow on a pathway or on rocks. Well corn isn't for a start, is it really? And you'd be right if you didn't know something about the Palestinian agriculture, which makes it very sensible. You see, Jewish farmers of the first century had no rain for about six months of the year until November. And when the rain came, you went out, not as we do, to plough and then sow. What they did was to throw the seed everywhere and they threw it over the pathway because the pathway was only a path that had been kind of established during the harvest time. It was only temporary. You'd soon be ploughing over the pathways. And they threw seed over rocky ground because they didn't know it was rocky. You see, when you get the sudden, the sudden rains in November, these flash floods, some of the topsoil in one part of the field would be washed down and would give a fine covering of silt over the rocks in a different part. So when the farmer comes to kind of go along chucking out his seed, he doesn't see rocks, does he? He sees silt, which looks just like the rest of the field to him. So he sows it there. He's got no idea also at that time of the year when all he's got is a rather moist earthen kind of um, vista in front of him. He doesn't know where the weed seeds are, does he? 
he can't see through the soil, so he chucks his seed everywhere. It's only with time does he discover where the weeds are. So the sower sows his seed everywhere. To him it all looks the same. He's got no idea which part of the fields are going to give the highest yield. Only time will tell. So some seeds sown on the pathway actually get eaten before he's had time to plough them in because he's gone home to get the oxen to do the ploughing but when he comes back the birds have already eaten it off the path. Other seed that fell on the shallow topsoil over the rocky limestone, they didn't last long. It started, but it wasn't able to take root. It wasn't able to get enough moisture. So when the sun came out after the rains, it just shriveled up. Other seed had good soil, no rocks, but the wind had blown the weed seeds there too. And in the favourable climate, the thorn bushes grew faster and overshadowed the corn seedlings, shutting out the life-giving sun. And with a rather more extensive root uh, system, the, the, the thorn bushes were able to nick all the water from the surrounding area. And so the little corn seeds withered away. But although the farmer had these disappointments, he had much more to be thankful for because some parts of his field yielded 30-fold, others 60-fold, some even 100-fold. That's for every seed sown, 100 are produced, I guess. That's a very high return, isn't it? And Jesus concluded, listen then, if you have ears. That might be a pun in English. I don't know any Aramaic, but I bet it isn't in the language that Jesus spoke. Now the second question, once we've got over ignorance and we realise this guy is not a stupid farmer, the second is to deal with attitude as we uh, look at the, at, uh, the meaning. Hang on. Now the important question is, um, what does the parable actually mean? Now with some parables, there's um, some dispute as to what they actually mean. But not here, because Jesus gives us the explanation. Maybe it's because he's first, that he's told them the explanation, who knows? But what does it mean? The first thing about parables is to recognise who Jesus is in the parable, because unless you do that, you'll never get it. And that's what Jesus means in verses 9 to 10 when he says this rather strange thing. His disciples asked him, what, what, uh, what does this parable mean? And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. I think he's just giving a statement of fact, really. Because unless you recognise, for example, in this parable, that Jesus is the sower, it will just be a story about first century Palestinian agricultural methods, which, fascinating as they might be for some, they probably aren't to any of us. Well, he explains that the seed is the word of God, or the message of Jesus, and the soils are the hearts of men. The heart, in their way of thinking, is the seat of all decision-making. 
The soils may all seem the same to the sower, but some parts of the field will prove to be a disappointment. But much of what he sows will turn out to be incredibly fruitful. So let's have a look at it in detail. But first let's register how the kingdom of God expands. It expands as the seed is sown, as the word or the message of God is spread. And it would seem from these New Testament, uh, uh, this New Testament, the New Testament, that three stages are envisaged. You have the sowing. Jesus came, if you like, incognito. He, was, he didn't turn up looking like God. And he sowed the seed in the hearts of a few chosen individuals. And then after his return to heaven, we have phase two, the period of growing. As the church spreads from a few dozen to the multi-million pound uh, sorry, the, you just associate pounds with multi-millions, but the multi-millions that there are in the church today and have been for the last 2,000 years. I remember we had a bishop visiting us a few years ago from Burundi. I think actually in the last month he's become the Archbishop of Burundi. And he was telling us how the, church, the Anglican Church in Burundi it was only founded about 75 years ago but now it has something like 600,000 active members. That's phenomenal growth. And the church will continue to grow worldwide as more and more people hear and embrace the word. Until finally, phase three is inaugurated by the return of Christ. Then we will have the reaping. Harvest time will have arrived and the great sort out between weeds and wheat will take place and God's eternal kingdom will be established forever. And we need to make sure that we're in it to enjoy it, but not everyone will be, even though some may have seemed to have made promising starts, and they're represented by different soils. There is the path, that's the first soil. Before the farmer has a chance to plough the seed in, the birds come and take that seed. This kind of person is the, ear, uh, is the in one in, one ear and out the other ear brigade. They come to church perhaps occasionally, possibly at Christmas, and they'll engage in discussion with you but will soon not want to pursue things any further. They'll begin to hear a bit of the gospel but not enough. And the little that they do take on board is soon snatched away by the devil leaving them with their distorted half-truths about Christianity. Yes, they say, I believe in God, but I'm not a sinner. I'm as good as anyone who goes to church. I, give, I pray to God and I give to Oxfam. Or as one visitor said to me after a Christmas service, I think it was an Advent service, he said, I liked everything except the bit about the judgment of God when I think all I'd done is read the Advent Collect, which is about the second coming. He didn't like that, and we shouldn't have that at Christmas or when the children are around, he advised. Well, I thought it was pretty clear. Yes, there is a coming of Christ when he will judge, because he's a just God. But there's already been a coming of God in Jesus 2,000 years ago when he came not to judge us, but to save us, so that we would escape the final judgment. And without his coming, we would all perish. 
In both events, you have the character of God, his mercy and his justice perfectly balanced, and for our benefit, we can be reconciled to him. And those two aspects of his character reconciled with each other. It's only when the message of Jesus is ploughed so deep into your being that a radical about turn in your life takes place involving repentance of sins and a total trust in Christ that you can ever say that you're a Christian. Well, next the stony ground, and the problem here is superficiality or easy believism. You think someone's converted when in reality they're not. Often it's those who make the most noise, who seem the most zealous, and yet today they're nowhere to be seen as far as the Christian faith is concerned. Verse 13. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. Each year we have um, a baptism and confirmation service. We might have 15 to 20 teenagers and adults. And we always have a photograph taken round the corner there. And, uh, and I was, remember once I was looking at a photograph and it was typical um, in many ways, but in another way, fortunately, it wasn't. Because in that particular photo I was looking at, two of the number had moved away from Basingstoke for work and one had changed church. But sexual temptation in its different forms had got all three. Believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away, verse 13. Well, had they not taken on board the message of the cross? Had it just been sorrow out of remorse rather than repentance? Had there been no realisation that before Almighty God they were guilty? Hadn't the evidence for the resurrection convinced them it was all true and sobered them up as to who they were dealing with? Had they not been aware of the call to a holy life? See, all of those things are features of any sermon in the Acts of the Apostles. They feature in all the New Testament evangelistic presentations. Read any of them and you'll see that they're all included. And you need to understand and appreciate all before you know what you're responding to. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they just heard an aspect of, um, you know, you can be forgiven. God's going to map out, you know, you're secure in his hands. I don't know. But whatever it was, they just picked on a bit. They made a response, but they did not understand. It did not go deep enough. I wonder whether anybody's in that category. Well, we move on. For the first group of people, the devil has blinded their eyes. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to open up their eyes so they can see, so that they can be stirred from their superficiality. For the second, for the second soil, the short, sharp shock of the world soon reveals their early enthusiasm for what it was, froth. But the third group are much more difficult to distinguish. And it takes a long time before we realise that this particular group are also phony. Verse 14. 
The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Well, maybe, you know, you have to wait until middle age. Mind you, I think when I was coming up to 25, I thought, I'm entering middle age. Well, you see, I wasn't any longer in my early 20s, so I must therefore be in middle age. And I thought, sign of age, I thought, I suppose I ought to look for somebody to get married to. And um, it was well timed, because I walked into a new job, got interviewed, was looking round at the staff I was responsible for, and I thought, hmm, yes. Anyway, that's another story, um, without which, you know, some of you wouldn't be here. Daniel in particular. Um, but um, anyway, back to where my notes are. Um, how did I get on to that? Anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, that's middle age, that's right. Because it's middle age that the, uh, the worries um, occur. And, uh, you know, the temptations of prosperity arise. As another translation captures it, they hear the message But the worries of this life and the love of riches choke the message and they don't bear fruit. That's quite evocative, choke the life out of. It's a kind of slow death. The worries of this life. Many people change their moral views, which they have learnt from scripture, either because of a personal struggle or because a very close friend or relative has opted for a fallen lifestyle and they can't bring themselves to say when asked whether that is compatible with following Christ or not. How many? Probably, sadly, too many. But if it's not the worries, then maybe it is wealth or particularly the love of riches that will derail you. I heard once um, the chief rabbi, Lord Sachs, when he was the chief rabbi, on Radio 4 Thought for the Day, and he made the point that Judaism has always been stronger in times of persecution. In times of prosperity, Jews, he said, tended to accommodate to the ways of the world. And isn't what is true of Judaism also true of Christianity? Some people, you see, give up under persecution but others are stubborn and they stick it out. But prosperity is more subtle. It's a less obvious attack. It subverts. You don't see it happening, but one day you wake up and find yourself indistinguishable from your non-Christian next door. Like the thorns, it chokes the life out of you and it reveals that you too are spiritually dead. Now let's see what's required for such soil to bear fruit or for a professor of faith to turn out to be genuine. And this is where a comparison of the three accounts in what's called the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, help to give us a full picture. They complement one another. They each add something to the parable because you know they heard it or it was passed on to them. But um, inevitably... You know, some people remember some things and some remember others. Put them together and you get the fullest picture. So Luke, we read, 
that um, an honest and good heart, verse 15, is necessary. If you seek God with that attitude, I've no doubt that you'll find him open, willing to learn. But if you set yourself as a rather detached investigator, rather aloof, you'll never find him. It's only the humble, the ones who recognize who Christ is, will actually get through to him. From Mark, they need, we're told, to hear the message, Mark 4.18. Personal example is very necessary, but it's not enough. Jesus says people need to hear the Christian message. We may say that actions speak louder than words, and I'm sure many of us are Christians because we were initially well impressed by the life of somebody that we knew who was a professing Christian. And that drew us to examine the Christian faith. And as we did that, we began to encounter the real Jesus. But for Jesus, words are more important than actions because words explain why somebody behaves differently. And from Matthew 13, 23, we see that they, needed, they need to understand it. No easy believism, no going on a church trip or a Jesus trip, no bit part Christianity. They need to understand the real thing. And Mark 4.20 says, having heard and understood, they need to accept it. Accepting Christ means that we have to recognise him and allow his sovereignty over our life. And finally, Luke has, we hold it fast, verse 15. Whether in the face of persecution or prosperity, we hang on, we persevere. And as we persevere, God promises to preserve us in the faith. So we stick with Jesus, we hang on to his right priorities, he gets us to the end. That is the secret of the fruitful life. Now, having understood the parable, we need to apply it. Many of us wonder how to reach the world. We think, ah, oh, we need better publicity. We need better public relations. We think of a program of social action. We might even think about, you know, setting up a miracle working ministry. Um, some might want to concentrate on beautiful liturgy. But no, words are the most important thing. The message, that's what changes people. It is quite amazing but it was Jesus' primary weapon. It should be ours too. We should have confidence in taking his teaching, understanding it, let it engage with the world around us and think creatively how to comment on the world on the basis of what Jesus has taught. And next, it is a warning. As we went through the parable, you were able, probably, to identify which soil you were. Which was it? I'm not going to get you to put your hands up, because that would be too embarrassing. But I would like you to answer the question for yourself, which soil am I? Has your response been too indifferent in the past? And the message this evening has rather surprised you. It's pulled you up short. Or were you the second soil? Once you made an enthusiastic commitment, but the whole thing has rather evaporated. There's no substance. It's not taken root. 
Or did you get off to a good start, full of vitality, but you've grown a bit tired, the life has been choked out of you? Well, the good news is that you can change soil. You can start again, but this time properly. Why not? It's the only safe place to be. Jesus told this to his disciples, to those following him. Now why did he tell it to them? Because he was aware that it is easy to misunderstand what he was saying. The disciples are very good examples of that. It's easy to make a false profession because you don't fully understand what you're signing up for. Maybe you didn't really fully realise what was involved in following Jesus. Maybe we deceived ourselves and it is quite easy to do. It's good to take stock and to make sure we really are believers, that we are the good soil. And how do we know? The answer is if we're fruitful, if there is a character change. So finally, for some encouragement, there is this good soil. The soil bears fruit, and this is where the encouragement is. The farmer, he's seen his setbacks. He's seen the birds come and take the seed. He's seen the, sh the seed shrivel up under the sun. He's seen the seed start to grow, but then life's been choked out of it. It's been nothing but bad news. But then the harvest comes and he can be really pleased because there it is, one fruitful field after another. It is fantastic. All the work, all the hard graft has been worth it. All the disappointments, all the setbacks and now success at last. So if you realise you're the wrong soil, you're not doomed. You can change. If you were too shallow, then you require understanding. If you were too exuberant in your initial response, if you were into Jesus a bit, but you had very little substance, then you need to acquire deeper roots. Or if over time you've allowed things of this world to dominate your thinking, well then you need a kind of shift in outlook to allow Jesus to be the centre of your thinking and to direct your actions. But if you're the fruitful soil, the only question left is how fruitful? 30, 60, 100 fold. You see, if you are a Christian, you are meant to be fruitful. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? To be fruitful is about Christian character, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. And also, there's an element in that about Christian reproduction too. I wonder if you can see in this a hint of what might be expected to result from really an average Christian life. Maybe over a lifetime, if you became a Christian on an M&M or a Dorset venture camp one summer in your teenage years, maybe over, 30, over, over a lifetime, 30 other people as a result of your witness become Christians. Or 60 or even a hundred over the course of a lifetime. That's not very many, is it? That's probably one or slightly over one a year. But what an objective to have. As a church and as Christians, we are in the growth business. Jesus has said the church will grow. It is guaranteed. 
not necessarily easily, but let's invest our lives in his enterprise. It'll turn out to be fruitful for us and for others and for the growth of the kingdom of God. When we get to heaven, we may be sad that some of the people we expected to be there are not, that they turned out not to have taken root. But what a joy to see many other people who will be there because we sowed the seed. That's an investment really worth making, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable and for Jesus' explanation of it. And we pray that we might reflect on those four different soils and to clearly understand which one we are. And if we're not the fourth, we might pray that uh, we would seek the advice of others and search our hearts to see how we can change soil. But we thank you that we can learn from this that the way of propagating the Christian faith is by sowing the seed. And the seed is the word of God, the message of Jesus. And we pray that you would give us the skills and the, uh, particularly the skills of being able to understand our world and our friends and to say the most apt thing at the most appropriate time. And we pray that as we spread that seed that some people would actually turn out to be genuine followers of yours. Maybe we don't see them in this life. Maybe we just have a part to play in their life for a particular moment. But we do thank you that we will look forward to a rich harvest at the end of time. And we will have the satisfaction of the part that we have played in it. Amen.